1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Greg Benneke about the new book, Impact, How Rocks from Space Led to Life, Culture, and Donkey Kong. The solar system. Dinosaurs. Donkey Kong. What is the missing link? Surprisingly enough, it's meteorites. They explain our past, construct construct our present, and could define our future. With humor and an infectious enthusiasm, Branica reveals previously untold but important stories, sure to delight and inform readers about the most important rocks on Earth. Greg, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks. Nice to be here.
0: So how are you? How was your week?
1: Uh, doing well. It was a pretty good week, I guess. Uh, had a couple sporting events. Uh, we had a recreational softball team and a uh, uh, soccer team. We both won, so that was good.
0: Catching some sunshine?
1: Yes, loving the uh, the summer coming this way.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So can you tell us, what do you do?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm a, a geologist, a space geologist, I guess. I study study rocks from space and to try to basically figure out, you know, where they came from, when uh, they were formed, uh, kind of how all the solar system formed and all the planets formed and the order in which they did.
0: It's absolutely coolest job. So, how did you get interested in studying uh, space rocks? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I, I kind of cut my teeth as a regular geologist, as a terrestrial geologist, and just really. Enjoyed being outside and really liked uh, kind of the lifestyle of, you know, looking at, uh, at rocks and then taking them into the laboratory and then studying them to, you know, find out what secrets they, they tell us. And uh, then I ended up taking a, a cosmochemistry class when I was doing my PhD work and I just loved it. And, and basically ever since then I was, I was hooked on space rocks. So it's uh, it's a really fun thing to study.
0: So with archaeology, I do understand that you have to go into the field and do all of this field work, which is quite nice. Do you do the same with the space rocks?
1: Well, unfortunately, uh, less less field work than with traditional geology. Archaeology, uh, you know, people do go collect uh, meteorites, but I've I've been on a few meteorite hunting trips, but I've never been lucky enough to find one. So most of my field work is, as I guess, at conferences and talking to people uh, around the field, but. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, you know nice when when other people bring back samples. There's a lot of trips that go to Antarctica and various places around the world to to kind of look and, and search for meteorites, and uh, it's it's pretty fun. I've heard I haven't had the chance to do it myself, but
0: and throughout your career journey, were there mentors or colleagues that were really supportive of you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean nobody nobody gets here without fantastic mentorship, uh, and uh, I was lucky enough to have. You know, really great teachers from a young age, uh, you know, even when I was in elementary school that were just very encouraging about doing things you like to do uh, and, and making sure you enjoy your, you know, quote unquote work, because at that point it's not work if you're really enjoying it. And, you know, my, my mentors in, in graduate school and, and internships that I've worked with uh, at various times have just been absolutely fantastic. And, I, you know, uh, I give all the credit to them for, for putting, uh, you know, me on such a good path.
0: And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers?
1: Uh, (laughs) um, I would just say, you know, if you're interested in something, do it and talk to the people that are doing it. Because when people are enjoying what they like, uh, enjoying their jobs, uh, they want to talk about it. They want to help the next generation get involved uh you know if you find a scientist uh that you enjoy what they do just talk to them and you know good luck getting them to shut up about it because they probably really like talking about it just ask (laughs) ask questions i think uh that's i guess one one advice uh i would give
0: oh i love it okay so your latest book is impact how rocks from space led to life culture and donkey kong so how did you come to writing it
1: Um, you know, it's funny because, uh, I went to a talk at a scientific conference about one meteorite that kind of changed the course of, uh, you know, kind of scientific history about how we looked at rocks falling from the sky. And I thought it was really interesting. And I went up to the, uh, the presenter afterwards and I just asked him, I, you know, is there a book that I can get more information about this, about other meteorites who are falling at the time? uh, you know, and, and kind of how the progress, the, the, the process of learning where meteorites actually came from, from academic standpoint. And he just kind of laughed at me and said, Oh, there's not really a book on that. You know, nobody's written a book. There's some scientific papers, but there's no book about it. So I thought, "Eh." I did a little research and I thought it might be something fun to do myself. So that's kind of how I got involved in it.
0: All right. So let's delve into some of the topics that you cover in your book and let's start with very basics. So can you explain what is a meteorite? (laughs)
1: Yeah, a meteorite is just uh, very simply just a rock that is from space. Uh, You know, people talk about asteroids and meteors and meteorites, and they're all basically the same objects. It's just where it is in its life cycle. So an asteroid is outside uh, Earth's atmosphere. It's, you know, floating around uh, the solar system. Uh, A meteor is when it flies through the atmosphere, and then a meteorite is when it lands. Uh, So you can call it whatever you want, but they're all just kind of rocks that uh, were born in space.
0: So is this the case with a meteorite shower? Are we calling it correctly?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, so a meteor shower is uh, kind of the sparkles that are, that are popping up uh, as they go through the atmosphere. And sometimes some of those will land and become meteorites. So, uh, you know, people get hung up on the nomenclature, but I don't really think it matters too much. They're all they're just the same objects.
0: <laughs> and how did we first discover meteorite, meteorites? meteorites?
1: Um, we first discovered them probably before, you know, well, well before, uh, humans were able to write and, and record things. I mean, people have been noticing rocks falling from the sky for a long time. They, you know, can make a very, uh, you know, big scene when it happens, uh, of course. So, you know, they've probably been noticing this, uh, humans have been noticing this for as long as, you know, humans have been around. Uh, of course it wasn't really documented, uh, until we could, you know, make records of these things. Uh, and then, of course, we didn't really understand where they were coming from for quite some time. So, you know, to me, that was really interesting is finding the evolution of, of how uh, humans became aware of what these rocks from the sky were and what they were telling us, uh, and then their evolution to com- becoming scientific objects. Uh, and that's what I found really interesting about doing research for the book.
0: And was it easy for people to distinguish that something is a rock from outer for, from space, basically?
1: Um, the short answer is no, uh, unless you actually see it fall. Of course, uh, you know, if you see a rock falling from the sky, then it's, uh, you know, we know now that it's there's a good chance it's coming from outer space. Uh, maybe your neighbor's chucking it over your fence. I don't know, but, uh, but most of them are, are probably falling from outer space if they're coming at high velocity. Uh, but of course, early on, you know, this was not, not known to be the case. Uh, you know, some people certainly thought that, you know, it was, it was tokens from the gods or, You know, I like uh, I like the little story that the the Aztecs thought they were poops from the gods, uh, which is which is kind of a funny, funny way of looking at uh, my chosen field of study. Um, But uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting evolution about uh, about how humans uh, came to, to start studying them for sure.
0: So how do meteorites change Earth itself and especially in the, in the early history? what was uh, its, uh, the impact of meteorites on the atmosphere?
1: Um, on the atmosphere of Earth, it was it's actually really uh, important. Uh, you know meteorites uh, you think of as, as maybe you know baseball size objects or tennis ball size objects, uh, but they come in all shapes and sizes and, and probably the first and, and most important meteorite, uh, strike that has happened in Earth's history was about the size of Mars. Um, early in Earth's history, uh, there was a huge impact uh, that happened, and which actually resulted in the formation of our moon. Uh, and and that you know the the uh, implications of that are, are wide-reaching because what happened is that it that meteorite impact or, or that impact that caused the moon-forming uh, event basically blew off all of the atmosphere that existed early in Earth's history, and had that not happened. We probably would have a very similar uh, atmosphere as Venus, which is, you know, kind of our sister planet. But Venus is completely uninhabitable because it's such a huge uh, amount of CO2. It's something like 96% CO2, uh, and it just has a crushingly dense atmosphere where nothing can really survive. So, you know, had that early impact not happened uh, in Earth's history, that we just simply wouldn't have the ability to harbor life on the planet. So I guess that's a, a pretty... Pretty good reason to study meteorite just in itself.
0: So, what happens with meteorite as it goes through the atmosphere?
1: Well, it depends on the type of meteorite. Of course, some are made of basically pure metal, and those don't really change much at all. Uh, you may only melt the outer millimeter or so, um, and some are are very different uh, types of objects. They're very water rich, uh, you know, much like maybe. Uh, you know, a lot of vesicles in them uh, like a sponge or something flying through the atmosphere and they break up a lot. Um, so sometimes you can have a meteorite like that, uh, that ended up losing a lot of its mass because it was burned up in the atmosphere. Uh, luckily most of them don't change a lot, uh, because it's such a quick journey through the atmosphere. Uh, you usually only lose a little bit of, of the meteorite. Sometimes they explode into a lot of different pieces. Um, but uh, you know most of the time when you find a meteorite, it's not like it's a uh, you know screeching hot and and uh, you know the, the inside has been at you know almost absolute zero of, of, of space, the really cold temperatures of space for so long uh, that the interior of the meteorites don't really change at all.
0: And what kind of things did meteorite bring to earth? <laughs>
1: Man, I, I don't know how long this podcast is, but uh, I could go on for days. Uh, so I would say probably you know, some of the most important, you know, kind of just starting with modern times. Uh, you know, I mentioned Donkey Kong in the title of the book. Uh, we wouldn't have electronics if it wasn't for meteorites. Uh, so meteorites have, have brought a lot of raw materials uh, and a lot of the precious metals that we use in, in things like cell phones and computers and video games. Uh, so those would not be accessible on Earth. They would all be in the core if it weren't for meteorites kind of delivering that and, and kind of sprinkling it around our, our crust. Uh, so that's, you know, one important thing for, for modern times. Uh, and then, of course, you know, even even more important, of course, is just life itself. And, and I'm not I'm not saying meteorites brought life, but they brought the ingredients for life. Um, so, you know, after that moon forming impact that I talked about, it was a a giant ball of basically molten rock. So it's basically just too hot to have any organic material. And of course we have organic material now. Uh, so how did we get that? And you know, the most obvious way that we got that is it was arriving from meteorites. Because if we look at meteorites today that are landing, uh, they contain tons of organic materials and you know, this is not life itself, of course. But things like amino acids, the building blocks of life are all contained within meteorites. and when i when I found that out in graduate school, it just really kind of blew my mind and made me want to study these even more because they just have such an incredible diversity of materials that are in them uh, and have have had such a huge you know impact, uh, quote unquote, on on earth's development.
0: That is absolutely fascinating, especially the organic molecules, that they can survive such a journey.
1: Yeah, it really is. And, and, you know, I didn't know how they formed, uh, until I started doing some research into this, uh, this topic. And, you know, these things all form kind of in the outer solar system, uh, by the interaction of, you know, carbon and oxygen and, uh, hydrogen and these very basic elements that are raw materials that are ubiquitous throughout the galaxy and the universe. Uh, and then when you have UV radiation basically uh, interacting with those, you end up forming just kind of randomly these different molecules that we use in, you know, our bodies. Uh, you know, amino acids and and parts of our DNA are all formed out beyond the orbit of Saturn, uh, which I think is absolutely fantastic. And then, of course, when meteorites form, then they arrive on Earth and they bring that material with them. Um, so it's it's really mind-blowing uh, about how we get that stuff. <laughs>
0: And how far can a meteorite
1: travel? Uh, a, a long, long way. Uh, I mean, the only evidence, we have evidence of, of uh, rocks that formed only in our solar system. And I say only in our solar system, like it's a small place. Uh, but, you know, they, they certainly travel from well beyond the orbits of, of Saturn. I mean, we have meteorites that have formed uh, that we have probably from at least 10 to 12 astronomical units away from the sun uh so that's basically the the astronomical unit uh you know that would be you know kind of beyond the orbits of, of of saturn so we know they travel that far in our own solar system uh there's no reason to think that these things aren't traveling all around the galaxy uh as well you know there's been there's been evidence of of uh extra stellar objects something that formed outside of our um solar system that have traveled through our solar system they didn't necessarily land uh, on Earth. Some have burned up in the atmosphere, it looks like, and then some have just, you know, kind of traversed our, our uh, solar system that we were able to see with telescopes. Um, but these things just travel. I mean, the chances of them hitting Earth are really low, uh, but they, they certainly are flying around.
0: And what, what are some of the ways and techniques that you use to study meteorites?
1: Well, I mean, it, it, you can start just with your eyes. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, looking at meteorites is very different than looking at uh, a rock from, you know, Hawaii or a, a volcano in, in Italy or, or wherever you are. Uh, you know, they're very different types of rocks. Uh, so, so just looking at them with your eyes, you can, you can tell that they're very different in most cases. Uh, so then you, you know, move to microscopes to where you can really get uh, a closer view of these things. And then you can kind of get into the more scientific, uh, machinery that exists today. Um, uh, you know, things like mass spectrometers, where you can really look at the elements and the different isotopic signatures of meteorites. And that can start telling you about when they formed and, and where they formed. And, and that's the kind of stuff that I really like to, to dig into is to find out the kind of the details of how these, these objects form and when they actually formed.
0: And when it comes to studying all of these uh, molecules that we can find within the meteorite, how do we know that it's not uh, contamination from Earth?
1: That is an absolutely fantastic question. Uh, So that is something that people really worry about when they're studying these types of things. And uh, basically, we have these different types of markers um, that tell us if it's contamination or not. Uh, and you know, there's, there's different, you know, for people that are really into biology, there's things like, uh, handedness, uh, things like, uh, you know, so life uses one handedness, uh, over the other. So in that case, then if it were contamination, it would be, you know, basically hundred percent of, of one handedness. Uh, you know, of, of, a, of a molecule. Whereas in meteorites, uh, we don't see it as as 100% of one type. We see a mixture. Usually it's around 50-50. Sometimes there's a slight uh, edge in, in one side. Uh, there are also things uh, that are found in meteorites that we don't have on Earth otherwise. Uh, so, you know, amino acids that simply life does not use uh, are found in meteorites. So many of these have been discovered in meteorites. Uh, we've never found them uh, let's say in an oak tree or in a human being or a, a whale, uh, they just don't exist. So, so the fact that these things, uh, kind of new molecules are being discovered in meteorites tells us uh, that it's not all contamination for sure. Um, and there are a lot of different, different biomarkers that I'm certainly not an expert in and telling you they're, they're different structures, but there are ways to look and see if these are contamination and, and are not contamination.
0: So, how are the meteorites different in, the, in their sizes that can uh, sort of pass through our atmosphere?
1: Yeah, so just like uh, you know, kind of any any rock on Earth, they come in a lot of different sizes, uh, and you know, the the way meteorites make it to Earth uh, generally are from impacts that happen in the solar system, so in the asteroid belt or on Mars or the Moon, and then different sized rocks get basically knocked into. Uh, an Earth-crossing orbit. So they're kind of on their way to the sun or flying around the sun, and Earth just kind of gets in the way. Uh, so this happens, you know, on a variety of sizes. And, and most meteor showers are just tiny little grains of sand uh, that we see just little flashes of light from. But of course, you know, we, we do receive a lot of uh, very small material, uh, you know, that is that makes it into Earth's atmosphere. But of course, the larger ones that we actually find and, you know, are able to put in museums or study or go on eBay, uh, you know, those those are larger and, and can pass through uh, the atmosphere and then are large enough to be found later on. So, yeah, they, they just come in a variety of, of shapes and sizes, of course.
0: And now thinking, what kind of impact did the meteorites have on the early life on Earth? What were some of those significant events?
1: Right. So so beyond just bringing ingredients, uh, you know, that, that life kind of used to end up creating itself. And of course, I'm not going not gonna to claim to know how that actually happened, whether it's, you know, lightning strikes or in, you know, primordial pools of tide pools and things like this. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a different field of, of study entirely. But one of the things I find really interesting is that there are a lot of limiting nutrients that exist on the planet, um, phosphorus being one. And we certainly use this a lot in, in uh, fertilizers uh, for farmers out there that, that you know, when they, when they fertilize their crops, uh, they have to use a lot of phosphorus. Uh, because it's just simply not a, uh, a nutrient that is easy to get uh, you know into plants uh, in the in the proper form, the reduced form. and And one of the interesting thing about meteorites is that it you know they contain a lot of reduced phosphorus. They contain a lot of reduced iron, things that life needs to keep going. So you know once life got kickstarted on earth, uh, you know four billion years ago or so, it would have needed kind of a constant input of, of life, you know, preserving nutrients like phosphorus and iron Uh, and meteorites provide that. uh, And they continue to provide that. I I think it's really interesting parts of the Pacific and and, uh, Atlantic ocean would probably be devoid of life. Uh, You know, plankton wouldn't be able to exist there if it wasn't for micrometeorites providing phosphorus and iron. Uh, So, you know, they continue to provide these types of nutrients to even our modern day uh, planet, when you think of a, a very vibrant uh, and active uh, ecosystem.
0: And how did the human population start utilizing a meteorite in the early days, or they did not at all?
1: Uh, no, it's, there's a lot of really interesting evidence in the archaeological record in particular uh, that shows how uh, humans utilize meteorites uh, both from a tools perspective or weapons. So, there's a lot of iron meteorites that were turned into digging tools or knives, uh, things like this. Uh, and, and part of that's because humans didn't know how to make iron, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as we know it today, as is, is kind of that shiny, you know, silvery metal. Uh, we couldn't do that until about 1200 BC. Uh, we just didn't have the technology to make fires hot enough to, to basically smelt iron. Uh, so the only form of iron in that, in, in that reduced form, uh, came from meteorites. So, you know, that was, that's a really interesting way of kind of looking at trading patterns. So if, if, uh, you know, cultures prior to the iron age, before we could, we could smelt iron, they could trade meteoritic iron. Uh, and it, and so it's a really interesting way of looking at trading routes as well as, as when the technology was actually developed in different cultures, uh, to, to smelt iron. Uh, and then, of course, they were used for decorative purposes. There's a lot of uh, beads and, and knives in, let's say, you know, Egyptian culture or Anatolia that were traded around, uh, you know, that, that came from outer space. Uh, and, of course, if, if a rock falls from outer space and makes a big, a big boom and, and a big flash of light, uh, then it's going to be worth trading around and, and uh, it's going to be garnering a lot of attention from, from cultures uh, in that time. And still does, really.
0: <laughs> so do you have your favorite meteorites that fell to Earth?
1: Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, <laughs> favorite meteorite. Well, there's a lot of uh, different types of meteorites. I would say probably my favorite type of meteorite is what is known as a carbonaceous chondrite. Uh, so there were two that actually fell in 1969. were both really important meteorites. One called Murchison, which fell in Murchison, Australia, and one called Allende, which fell in Mexico, and uh, I guess I would consider those my favorites for for the reasons that they're large enough to allow a lot of people around the planet to study them, uh, and they're also very primitive meteorites that contain a lot of these organic molecules. They've never been melted. They've never been heated above, you know, maybe you know uh, the same temperatures that you see in 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 Phoenix or in Rome in the summer. Uh, you know, so there, there's some there's some really pristine uh, characteristics of these meteorites that basically capture what was going on in the very, very early solar system. And scientifically for me, that's really interesting because they're kind of snapshots of what was happening back then. Uh, and then of course, you know, I, I, won't, uh, I won't say I'm not really interested in Martian meteorites too. Uh, they're the only chunks of Mars that we have and they're really, really interesting to study. And, and it's a great way to kind of get ready for Martian sample return when, when various space agencies are able to pull that off in the future.
0: Oh, I wanted to ask, how excited are you?
1: (laughs) Oh, man, I'm excited. Uh, Very excited. We actually just finished uh, sending in some proposals for some of the sample return missions from the asteroids that are coming back. Uh, So uh, the Japanese Space Agency was able to bring back some samples of of, uh, an asteroid uh, last year, I believe, uh, and sample proposals are out for that, to be able to work on that. And then, of course, the NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission uh, is, is going to be landing in, uh, September of next year, I believe. And there'll be samples from, uh, that asteroid Bennu, uh, coming back. And I really hope to be able to study some of that material because it's super exciting. Um, so yeah, it's really really cool. Basically bringing the meteorites to us only without the influence of, uh, you know, earth in the process, we can really get that most pristine signature of the early solar system that we can get.
0: Yeah, for sure. Even if it's tiny amount.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, luckily, we don't need that much material to study for most of these types of things. You know, even, even sometimes milligrams of material is enough to, to answer some really important questions.
0: Mm, that's right. Even recently uh, in, in the science news, uh, researchers were able to grow some plants in some of the soil
1: Yes, lunar soil. You can uh, We can grow plants in lunar soil now, which is really cool. <laughs> it's just a really fun time to be paying attention to space news. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff going on.
0: So now thinking about uh, how we utilize meteorites nowadays, so when did we first realize that they contained some of those really important elements that we can really extract, for example? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it wasn't actually until kind of the 1800s, uh, the very early 1800s, that we really even considered meteorites to be scientific objects that were coming from outer space. And, you know, this is, this is kind of mind-blowing uh, when I first found out about this because I thought, okay, well, if you see a giant rock falling from the sky, where else would it come from? You know, what, what could it possibly be other than space? But, you know, to kind of take yourself back in time, we didn't really understand, uh, you know, how the solar system was organized, of course, back in, you know, Roman times and Egyptian times. Uh, so, you know, it, it becomes a little bit more difficult to, to kind of make that make that uh, leap that they were coming from outer space. Uh, and of course, you know, as, as we figured out kind of the structure of the solar system, uh, you know, there's still some hangups, you know, there were volcanoes that were possible that were, you know, burping out these, these types of rocks, but it wasn't really until the 1800s, uh, that enough scientists kind of really categorically described how these things were falling and, and, showed the difference between these rocks that were falling from, from the sky and rocks that weren't falling from the sky. Uh, and that seems very simple, but it wasn't really done, uh, properly scientifically until the 1800s. Uh, So, yeah, it wasn't until pretty recently in in human history that we actually figured out that these were rocks coming from space.
0: And now moving from science part more towards cultural part. So what role do they play in our culture?
1: Well, I mean, you know, when you have rocks that are making a big deal uh, of themselves coming in with flashing lights and big booms, uh, it certainly, you know, breeds a lot of interest. And uh, with that, religion gets mixed in and i I think it's really interesting kind of the different inflection points that we see in some of the world's you know most followed religions whether it's islam or christianity uh you 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 see and 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 other you know religions as well aboriginals uh have, have certainly a lot of influence with uh with meteorites in their um in their religions as well uh but you know just to use kind of christianity as an example uh, you know, it would, it would be a very, very different place on this planet if it weren't for, uh, you know, kind of the, the path that Christianity took due to meteorites. And, uh, you know, kind of, you know, for those that are familiar with, with uh, Christian religion, uh, the, uh, the apostle, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the kind of evangelist uh, named Saul or Paul, depending on when, uh, when you look at it, uh, you know, was, was basically converted to Christianity due to a meteoritic airburst and i find that to be fascinating and, and you know it was a christianity was a very small religion at that time and then because of this conversion of of this very outspoken individual uh it became a much more popular religion and then and then kind of developed into the most most followed religion uh on on the planet today so you know to think of that uh you know that's pretty important and then of course you know look at the second most followed religion islam uh and and one of the actual literal cornerstones of the place where they they pray uh or uh in in mecca is uh you know probably from a meteorite impact oh, wow. uh, so i find that to be really fascinating as well Is is just the the sheer influence that meteorites have had on on the most followed religions on the planet
0: so apart from all of the positive parts of the meteorites so what's happening if the meteorite is way too big for example or it hits the wrong place <laughs>
1: Yes, everybody always worries about mass extinctions, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the dinosaurs would probably argue against for meteor against meteorites. You know, they're not a big fan. Uh, you know, and, and certainly, you know, we've seen over history uh, the dinosaurs being the most dramatic example uh, of of just you know being wiped out by meteorites. Um, you know, but but interestingly, that doesn't happen that often. Uh, luckily enough for us, I guess. Uh, you know, that that's the only major mass extinction that we can really tie to a meteorite impact is uh, is is kind of the end of the dinosaurs. And you know, people will argue if they were on their way out uh, before then or, or declining, but I think most people would would agree that a, a huge uh, meteorite impact was was not good for the dinosaurs, uh, and certainly looked like it was kind of the last nail in the coffin for for their reign on on Earth. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is a danger that people are are certainly looking at. There's been a lot of Hollywood movies, you know. Most recently, "Don't Look Up" was a really funny take on on uh, you know this type of interaction with uh, space material, and you know more. You know, distantly, Armageddon, you know, deep impact, these are all really interesting Hollywood takes on on this, but, you know, these things can happen. Uh, we're keeping an eye on the sky uh, with a lot of telescopes and, and smart people looking for these things if they are coming our way, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a real, it's a real danger. It may be a very, very small percentage of, of danger, but uh, it's something we should pay attention to for sure.
0: Are there some kind of programs uh, for observing meteorites that could potentially be a problem?
1: Yeah, uh, there are. There are multiple. So NASA has its own group of planetary protection. uh, And then, you know, ESA, the European Space Agency, they've uh, got networks basically around the world that do kind of sky scans uh, to look for objects that may be crossing an earth orbit and and, you know you occasionally you'll see these uh news stories pop up like oh there's a an asteroid the size of a football field that's going to pass between the moon and earth and you know things like this uh luckily you know we don't have any large ones that are are predicted to hit us uh but that makes the assumption that we've we found them um you know so there's there's a lot of a lot of like i said a lot of people in telescopes that are looking up uh trying to find any earth crossing asteroids or comets uh, that may be coming, coming our way in the future. Um, you know, so, so people are paying attention, uh, which is great. Uh, I, I certainly appreciate their work. Uh, but so far we don't have any, uh, that are cataloged that we're, are going to hit us in any time in our, in our near future.
0: Oh, I'm really glad to hear that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we all are.
0: <laughs> Cause it's a, a little bit scary. <laughs> So, yeah, so I wonder if there are some ways that we actually could protect ourselves, or is it more about uh, trying to mitigate uh, sort of the fallout if we had?
1: Well, I, you know, unfortunately, if it's, a, if it's a large asteroid, you know, the size of the ones that, uh, that hit the, the Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs, there's not a lot of, we can do uh, after it hits. Uh, we do have uh, kind of plans in case we f- see one that's coming our way. Uh, and, it, and, and kind of our options are limited by how long it, how long we have so much for those listeners that have, have seen the movie, don't look up, uh, there was only a couple months until that, uh, impact was about to happen. So then you, then you have, you know, one option, it's a very aggressive option. You know, you end up, uh, you know, kind of the Armageddon style of, of using nuclear weapons or large, uh you know, projectiles to try to break up the asteroid or or kind of change its trajectory uh, as it's coming towards Earth. Uh, you know, with that comes problems if, in case you, you know, make it large, uh, excuse me, make that large asteroid into smaller bits that still hit Earth. That's still a problem. Um, but you have few options when you only have a couple months. If you've got years, uh, you know, then things can become a little bit more passive and you don't have to be quite so aggressive with your, with your means. You can basically you know, go up there. If you've got 10 years, for example, you can park a, a, a spacecraft next to it and use the spacecraft's gravity to basically just passively drag that asteroid away from its Earth crossing orbit. So you just slowly nudge it basically with gravity. Um, so if you've got a lot of time, there's a lot of options. Uh, and there's some really cool other options uh, discussed about painting the asteroid to kind of change its um, you know, how it behaves with the sun and and, and that would change its orbit. So there's some, there's some really cool ideas out there if we've got a lot of time. But if we don't have a lot of time, we're probably going the military route.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I know. So what is in the future of this field? I can imagine it's really vast, but what do you want to see?
1: Um, you know, I think that the tie-ins with the new space missions, I think are really important. Uh, you know, people have been studying meteorites, uh, you know, pretty... Uh, pretty well with, with modern instrumentation since, since we brought back samples from the moon. And that really kind of kick-started the meteorite research. And, and, you know, basically after this, you know, the bring back of Apollo samples in 69 and, you know, the, the, the trove of, of material that's brought back from the moon that people were really excited about. That kind of bred a lot of uh, instrumentation development um so that's been been huge and i think that connection between space missions that actually bring samples back uh and the meteorites that we have in our collection is is going to be really key and i think you know talked a little bit earlier about the asteroid return uh samples that are that are here on earth and then are coming back in the case of nasa uh you know kind of looking at meteorites and comparing those to samples that we collect from asteroids uh that's going to be a really exciting field and of course you know, Martian sample return is uh, you know a, a really really exciting uh, endeavor uh, that that hopefully will happen while I'm still doing science uh, because it's super exciting and uh, you know I think I think the tie-ins with meteorites and and space materials that we're bringing back are just probably going to be the where where we're going and and kind of continuing to develop machinery that can look at these types of materials.
0: Oh, fascinating! So, what do you want to find in the Martian return? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, everybody wants to find an alien fossil, right? <laughs> that would be, that would be, uh, pretty, pretty great. I, I don't know how probable that is. Um, you know, so I won't, uh, I won't even really list that as something I hope to find, but, uh, I guess I just want to continue finding answers, uh, to these interesting questions. And, you know, I, I, guess I know that sounds really cheesy, uh, but that's, you know, ultimately what we do or why we do what we do as scientists. Um, you know, and some questions and answers are bigger than others, of course, you know, life on other planets and things like that. Uh, But, but they all help us understand where we came from and how stuff works on the grand scales that we talk about with space and, and the universe. So I guess, (laughs) you know, I I guess that's kind of what I would hope for is just being able to, uh, you know, look at these and, and answer interesting questions. And and of course, you know, an alien fossil would be as cool as it gets as far as I'm concerned. But I'm, I won't I uh, won't even put that on a list because the probability is so low.
0: <laughs> well, as long as it's not a blob which uh, gets out of the meter, right?
1: <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> so what discoveries in your research for your book impact surprised you the most?
1: Um, I guess... Learning more about kind of the, the history of science um, and how meteorite, meteoritics developed as a field uh, was something that, you know, I wasn't aware of, uh, you know, kind of studying meteorites in the lab day to day. You look at kind of modern questions about meteorites, about when this formed and, and, you know, kind of what its isotopic signature is and, you know, where it formed in the solar system and things like this. Uh, and you kind of you kind of lose track of, of how we got to where we are. And, and to me, doing the research on what was going on with meteorites in 1750, uh, you know, during the Greek times, what was going on? What were the thoughts about meteorites when Tutankhamun was was, you know, the, the ruler of, of Egypt? And, uh, you know, I think that was a really interesting look at how different cultures have viewed these space phenomenon um, and and kind of how we got to where we are. And, and I guess to me, that was something I didn't have a lot of appreciation for uh, until I started doing research for the book. Uh, and now I just think it's absolutely fantastic uh, about how you see different cultures um, develop their, their thinkings uh, about these different, different phenomena, whether it be eclipses or, uh, you know, uh, meteor showers or whatever it may be. Uh, it's it to me, it's really fascinating. And I was really excited about learning about that stuff when I was doing research.
0: So do you think there's uh, an injustice of how meteorites are constantly portrayed in our films, that they are bad guys? So if you were writing a movie and uh, you had to make a meteorite a protagonist, what do you think that would be?
1: (laughs) Oh, well, that's going to be a great movie. I can't wait to write that one. Uh, you know what? Uh, I don't know. I, that's a, that's a great question. I would say uh, I think it's great. People are just paying attention. So maybe I just have a really low bar that I'm just glad somebody's paying attention to our field. <laughs> so whether they're protagonists or antagonists, it doesn't really bother me. Um, but if I were to write a movie with a, a protagonist meteorite, it would just be kind of the information that it, that it brings us. Uh, you know, I, I guess you know it, it could you know, fortuitous to land on the enemy of, of, uh, you know, of, of earth or something. But, uh, but yeah, to me, it's just the information that we, we gain from, from studying meteorites. So that would be maybe a boring protagonist, but, uh, (laughs) certainly one that I would be into.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what would be your next project?
1: Um, yeah, so what I'm currently working on uh, is, as I mentioned a couple of times, looking at where things formed in the solar system. Uh, so, one of the, the projects that uh, my group and I are working on is, is basically kind of mapping out uh, where different meteorites and meteorite groups formed. And, and actually, we, we see that they form from very close to the sun all the way out to beyond the orbit of Saturn. And, and with the kind of help of space telescopes looking at, uh, you know, kind of regions of space where star systems are forming and planets are just being born, we're starting to kind of understand how our own solar system was built. Uh, and, and because we have this gradient of, of meteorites uh, we can actually kind of start to reconstruct what the early solar system looked like uh, before it kind of got jumbled up and, and and you know, into the, the orbits that we see today. Um, so I guess, you know, from a scientific standpoint, that's what I'm working on most now. Um, and I, f- I find that to be really cool to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle back together about what our solar system looked like back, you know, four and a half billion years ago when it was first getting started. Um, as far as next projects... Um, you know, I guess kind of going where the science takes us, if we're able to, to start looking at some of these asteroid sample returns, uh, you know, I'm very excited about that. Um, you know, and, and I think just the connections of, of meteorites with the space missions, uh, are are what I'm probably most excited about and looking forward to continuing working on.
0: And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
1: Um, I guess, you know, the old internet is, is usually a pretty good tool for that stuff. Uh, unfortunately I'm not, uh, super adept at, at social media, but I am on Twitter, uh, just at Greg Brennica is, is my, uh, Twitter username or whatever handle. Uh, and then of course, you know, to find the book, uh, any, any, your local bookstores, hopefully you have it. Uh, and of course you can always get it on Amazon or, uh, any other places on the internet where you can, you can buy books. Um. But uh, yeah, so I guess, and then just finding out more about the research, uh, if you're interested, take a look at, uh, you know, some of the websites out there that do do meteorite research. There's some, there's some cool, uh, you know, explanation videos uh, and, or just, you know, find me and send me an email or something. That's always, always an option because I love talking about it.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yes, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk.